This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Georgie, the kite is gone. Just give up. You're climbing pretty far. It's not that bad. I swear the kite went down somewhere up here. I'll be down in a minute. Okay. Just be careful. It's really creepy up here. So you're scared? Ha! Just come back down when you find your dumb kite. Whoa! Didn't see you. Have either of you seen a kite go down around here? Hey! I'm sorry if you're asleep. I just need to know if... You know, maybe you shouldn't be napping here. It smells awful. Oh, oh my god! Officer, you have to send a squad. Name? Georgie da Costa Alves. I was out flying a kite with some friends at the Vintame Hill when I found two dead guys. Young man, are you sure? It's the craziest thing. They were both in business suits, and they had their hands behind their heads like they were napping and- So maybe it was a really good nap. Look, it's been a crazy few days. Officer, I smelled them rotting. Can you describe their situation? Were they injured? No. They looked totally normal, except for, well, being dead in suits in the middle of the afternoon, and the metal masks over their eyes. What did you say about eye masks, young man? They're both wearing them, and they looked homemade. Maybe made out of lead? On Vintame Hill? Yes, sir. So, it's happening again. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on the mysterious, otherworldly, lead masks case. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders 
as well as all of ParCast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening. Saturday, August 20th, 1966, was supposed to be a peaceful day of kite flying for 18-year-old Jorge da Costa Alves. The teenage Brazilian was out with his friends near Tame Hill in Niteroi, a city just across the Guanabara Bay from Rio de Janeiro. Though it probably paled in comparison to the glitz and glamour of world-famous Rio, Niteroi was still busy and prosperous. It was even named Brazil's richest city in 2011. Back in 1966, Jorge lost his kite and navigated the difficult terrain of Tame Hill, hoping to find it. Instead, he was assaulted with the smell of decay and discovered the bodies of two men in their 30s. They were lying on palm leaves and had been dead for some time. Both men wore business suits, waterproof coats, and strange homemade lead masks over their eyes. Georgie rushed to report his grisly find to the Niteroi police, but the police were slow to react. In fact, they didn't navigate the hill's tricky terrain until the next day, Sunday, August 21st. When they arrived, firefighters, journalists, and curious onlookers also accompanied them. Everyone was dying to know more about the two bodies on Tame Hill. Well, the kid was right. We've got two bodies, male, maybe in their 30s. No injuries, no weapons. Strange. It gets stranger. See, they're in formal suits and raincoats. I have no idea why. Although, I do remember that it was stormy the other day. So, they've been here for a while? Smells like it. Oh, it's unbearable. See those palm leaves they're lying on? It looks like they set them up to sit on them, maybe to make the ground more comfortable. They also have an empty water bottle and a pack of towels. What about the masks? It's just like the boy said. Lead masks over their eyes. I don't know why, but maybe the notebook will help. Notebook? I found one right by their bodies. It's got these strange instructions in it. The notebook the police found by the bodies was like something out of a conspiracy movie, and now they had to decode it. On one page was a series of instructions in Brazil's official language, Portuguese. But even if you spoke Portuguese, the sentence structure was unnatural and choppy, almost like the note was written in shorthand. Now, maybe these were personal notes and they were never meant to make sense to a stranger, but it wasn't just the phrasing that baffled the police. It was that these instructions clearly showed that the men climbed Tame Hill with a mysterious purpose in mind. Take a look at this. 4.30 p.m., be at the agreed location. 6.30 p.m., ingest capsules. After effect, protect metals, wait for mask signal. What in the world? That's it? That's all it says? Well, there's another page here with a list of, well, it, it's just mysterious numbers which makes even less sense. 4.30 p.m., be at the agreed location. I'm guessing that means this hill. 6.30 p.m., ingest capsules. We'll have to do a toxicology report on them once we get them down the hill. Maybe they were poisoned. What about after effect, protect metals, wait for mask signal? I have no clue. Not yet. 
the Niederoi police had a truly baffling puzzle that they needed to solve, and each major piece was odder than the previous one. Two rotting bodies in formal wear and raincoats with no visible injuries. Strange, handcrafted lead masks that hid the men's eyes. And a small notebook that contained ominous instructions. There was no easy solution to this crime, if it even was a crime. After all, the men were dead but not injured in any visible way. As if the case weren't complex enough, the police also encountered clerical and organizational difficulties that impeded their progress. Due to the rocky terrain, the Niederoi police weren't able to make it up the hill to see the bodies until August 21st, the day after teenager Georgie da Costa Alves found them. Once the bodies were brought down, you would think an autopsy would happen immediately. After all, the men's notebooks seemed to indicate that they had ingested some kind of capsule. But the coroner's office was overbooked at the time, which delayed the autopsy. This delay was a crucially damaging blow to the case. Remember, the bodies had been on the hill for at least two days. By the time the coroner finally performed an autopsy, the bodies had decomposed to such a degree that toxicology reports would have been inconclusive. Because of this, no tests were performed, which is a shame. There wasn't much external evidence to go on, and the men had no visible signs of injury or trauma. Instead, their death was officially ruled to be from cardiac arrest due to unknown causes which is technically true. Their hearts weren't beating, and they certainly died mysteriously. But that doesn't answer the question of how they died. So now the police had to find out who these men were, even if discovering the body's identities would only bring up more confounding questions. When the police found the two dead men on August 21st, 1966, they quickly identified them as 32-year-old Manuel Pereira de Cruz and 34-year-old Miguel José Viana. They learned that Manuel and Miguel had traveled 140 miles to die on Vintame Hill, all the way from their homes in Campos dos Goi Tacajis, a city to the northeast of Niteroi. In Niteroi, these men were mysterious corpses, but in Campos, they were two perfectly average electronic technicians. Oh, Miguel. Mr. Da Silva is going to drive me crazy. He called me at the crack of dawn complaining about his broken TV. Turns out, and I'm not kidding, the damn thing was unplugged. <laughs> I promise you, one day we're going to start that business together. Then we'll hire some minions, and we can send them to do all the dumb jobs for us. Here's hoping. I feel like my wife thinks I'm a total stranger these days. Yeah, things will change, Manuel. I know they will. How can you be so sure? Maybe someone up there is looking out for us. Huh. I'll drink to that. Manuel and Miguel were close friends, who were both electronic repairmen. And sources say they plan to start a business together someday. Not much is known about their personal lives, other than the fact that they both were married and had young families. They were good friends, and like all good friends, probably had their fair share of secrets that they kept from each other. That's why nobody in Manuel and Miguel's life could fully explain why the two men left their city for a mission to Niteroi on August 17, 1966, three days before their bodies were discovered. Good morning, my dear. Manuel, you're up so early. Why are you wearing a suit? I'm meeting Miguel. We're going to take a little field trip down to Niteroi. Little trip? That's a three-hour bus ride. Sounds miserable. It's for work, Nelly. We're going to buy some equipment we need. I'll be back before you know it. 
On the morning of Wednesday, August 17, 1966, Manuel and Miguel went to the Campos bus station for a day trip. According to reports, their friend Elcio Gomez either drove or came with them to the station. There are conflicting reports on whether Elcio was a repairman like Manuel and Miguel or a civilian airline pilot. Either way, he shared common interest with Manuel and Miguel, but on August 17th, Elcio was rebuffed when he tried to join the men on their trip. You know, I could use some new gear too. I'm going to see if there's still tickets for this bus. Elcio, you should stay here. It's kind of just a trip for Miguel and I. You two are always off plotting some crazy scheme. Come on, I can handle whatever it is you're planning. It's nothing personal. It's just... Look, you'll understand when we get back. Elcio, we'll see you soon, I promise. Manuel and Miguel left Campos around 9 in the morning, but not before a chance encounter with Miguel's niece at the station. Uncle Miguel, where are you going? Just a little day trip with Manuel. You remember him, right? Sure. Hey, that's a lot of money you've got in that bag. I told you we should have put it somewhere else. Why do you need all that? We're going down to Niteroy to get some supplies. But there are a lot of great deals on used cars down there, too. I figured we could maybe score Volkswagen. The king of cars! Okay, but you know a used car would be a lot cheaper here in Campos, right? <laughs> you ask a lot of questions. Look, we're going down there for other reasons too. It's important work. You'll see. Everything will change once we're back. Uncle Miguel, you're such a weirdo. Anyway, have a nice trip. We don't know exactly how unusual this trip was for Manuel and Miguel. After all, it makes sense that two tech-savvy repairmen would want to head down to a bigger city to get the best deals on equipment. And if they were really planning to open a business together, buying a used car together would make sense too. But the two men had between two and three million Brazilian cruzeiros in currency on them. Those numbers are a little tough to translate. The Brazilian economy was suffering from hyperinflation in 1966, and the Cruzeiro has since been retired and replaced with the Brazilian Real. The closest analogy we can come to is that they had about a thousand US dollars between them. That was probably a lot of money for two repairmen who could only afford long, uncomfortable bus rides. Still, it seemed that to any of the friends and family that they encountered that day, Miguel and Manuel were simply on a trip to buy new gear. Depending on the availability of parts in their hometown, of Compost dos Goitacajis, this may have been the kind of trip they often took. Could any of their friends and family have suspected that this supply run was a very different one? And could they have known that Manuel and Miguel's supposedly innocent trip was going to end in two of the most mysterious deaths in Brazilian history? We'll unravel more of this mystery after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now, back to the story. The police interviewed dozens of sources in their quest to reconstruct the events of August 17, 1966, when two electronic repairmen, Manuel Pereira de Cruz and Miguel José Viana, took a long bus trip into the city and mysteriously died on a hillside that same day. After finding out what had happened before their trip, the police focused on Manuel and Miguel's activities once they got off the bus to Niteroy. Niteroy, everyone off for Niteroy. When the bus dropped Manuel and Miguel off, it was 2.30 p.m. Their first stop was an electronic store called Fluoscope, where the two men were regular customers, although we don't know how the police found this out. Manuel and Miguel didn't purchase anything at the store, which isn't necessarily suspicious. Maybe they were in a browsing mood? Hmm, maybe. But it seems strange that they spent hours on a bus just to do some window shopping. You could theorize that perhaps they were saving their money for a used car. But it was at this point where their day trip veered wildly off course. Their next known destination wasn't another electronics store or a used car lot. It was a store where they purchased two raincoats. Again, not so strange. After all, it was apparently starting to rain outside. The only red flag was the store's employees' observation that they had raced out of the store into the rain without even putting the coats on. Sometime between 2.30 and 4.30 p.m., they hurried to their next destination, a Niteroy bar called Bar das Relvas. A bar receipt from August 17th was found with the bodies, which led the police there. It was another place that didn't match Miguel and Manuel's planned itinerary for the day. From all accounts, this wasn't a fun detour to check out the big city happy hour specials. The bartender at Bar das Relvas later told the police that both men were visibly hurried and anxious. Excuse me, could we get some service here? We're in a rush. Okay, sir, what'll it be? A quick tequila shot before you have to get back home to the missus? Miguel, hurry. No, just a bottle of mineral water. Now, please. Coming right up. Actually, hang on a sec. Uh, What's the problem? Do you want the receipt? What? If you keep the receipt, you can bring the bottle back and get a partial refund. It's a glass bottle, so... Uh, Sure, sure, yes, yes, uh, receipt is fine. Let's go, Miguel. According to the bartender, Miguel ordered the bottle of mineral water while constantly checking his watch. He was visibly antsy. Maybe they were just stressed out over not finding the gear that they wanted. But it's important to note the time that they were seen in the bar. It was 4.35 p.m., five minutes after their mysterious notebook instructed them to be at some predetermined location. Perhaps the bar was the predetermined location, but it doesn't seem likely, given how anxious Manuel and Miguel were. Whatever their secret plan was, they were running behind schedule. They had less than two hours until they were supposed to ingest some kind of capsule at 6.30 p.m. 
as the notebook instructed. But the bar trip may have been a necessary detour. After all, if you are going to a remote location to take some capsules, you probably need to wash them down with some water. The next part of Miguel and Manuel's day was harder to reconstruct. We know that after the bar detour at 4.35 p.m., a witness saw them very close to Tame Hill around sundown. That would have been between 5.30 and 6 p.m. on August 17, 1966. The witness's name was Raulino de Matos, and he told police what he saw. Where did you see the two men you believe to be Miguel Viana and Manuel de Cruz? It was right at the base of the hill. They were in a jeep. Were they driving it? No, a blonde man was. It was getting dark, but there were other men in the car too. How many men? One or two, in addition to the blonde man and the two who would end up dead. And they climbed the hill? Yes, Miguel and Manuel, was it? They started to climb up Vintame Hill. I remember it because it was getting dark and the weather was terrible. But those two guys went up anyway, I guess to their deaths. Ralino's assertion that there were up to three people who took Manuel and Miguel to the hill meant that there were new potential suspects in this case. However, it doesn't seem that police ever succeeded in finding these mystery men, and no one else came forward to say they were with Manuel and Miguel before they died. The next time anyone saw Miguel or Manuel, they would be dead on the hillside with odd masks over their eyes. In the days that followed the discovery of the bodies, the police made some interesting discoveries that added even more peculiarities to the case. Though Georgi da Costa Alves found their bodies and reported it to the police on August 20th, 1966, someone else apparently found their bodies first, another teen boy. In their investigation, police discovered that 18-year-old Paolo dos Santos was hunting sparrows in the hills on Thursday, August 18th, He found the bodies and reported them to a local patrolman, Antonio Guerra. For reasons unknown to us, Guerra never did anything with this information, which meant it took another two days before the bodies were reported to the police. If Guerra had reported it, Miguel and Manuel wouldn't have stayed outside decomposing for three days, which eventually made an autopsy impossible. It's interesting to note that despite being left out for so long, Manuel and Miguel's bodies were apparently left untouched, by the animal scavengers that stalked these hills. Not even the rats would approach these corpses, which feels a little eerie. Something must have happened to their bodies to make them particularly unappealing. Well, we'd probably know a lot more if a proper autopsy were conducted. Sadly, all we have to rely on is what was found around their bodies. A strange set of clues, right out of a Sherlock Holmes story. But there is something that we do know. The circumstances of this crime made it clear that Manuel and Miguel weren't there by accident. Their entire day's mission was planned to culminate on the hill. And everything around them, from the palm fronds to the raincoats to the eerie lead masks, was organized with a purpose in mind. The police weren't able to fully decode the meaning of their mysterious mission, so let's climb the rough Vintame Hill terrain and investigate the crime scene ourselves. Manuel and Miguel were found lying on top of palm leaves, which seemed to be neatly cut and placed there intentionally. The hill was known to be rocky and difficult to navigate, and the men were found with their hands behind their heads, like they were relaxing. It seems like they intended to lie down. 
So maybe the palm fronds were just there to provide extra comfort. And then there were the raincoats and the pack of towels. Well, it was raining. If Manuel and Miguel were compelled to be on Vintame Hill on a rainy day, they probably would want to dry off, so that's not so unusual. Fair enough. Our next potential clue is the fact that they were in formal business suits, which makes very little sense. If you were about to go on a three-hour bus ride to look at electronics and used cars... You probably wouldn't wear your fancy suit. Maybe they wanted to make a good impression on a used car salesman. Sure, but Miguel and Manuel apparently never made it to any car lots. Instead, they went hiking up a hill, so the outfits remain a mystery. Manuel and Miguel's plan for their day was obviously different from what they told their family and friends. They'd lied to them. But why? It's possible that unbeknownst to their loved ones, the two were meeting someone important. They alluded to the fact that their trip to the city was an important one, but made no mention of any business dealings or meetings. Perhaps the men who drove them to the hill in the Jeep were a big deal. That would explain how rushed they were in the store when they bought their raincoat and in the bar where they bought their water. Maybe they didn't want to disappoint whoever they were meeting. Our next bit of evidence is the money, or rather, what was left of it. Manuel and Miguel left Campos dos Coitacajis with around 2.3 million cruzeros. We don't know how the police determined that this was the amount that they had with them, but it's possible that one of the victim's wives or friends knew how much they took. But when police went through their belongings on the hill, most of that large sum was gone. Miguel had a plastic bag in his pocket containing 157,000 cruzeros while Manuel's pockets contained around 5,000 cruzeros. We know they went to Niederoy to buy gear for work and possibly a used car, but apparently they only purchased raincoats, towels, and a bottle of water. The receipt from the water purchase at Bar das Relvas was still in their possession. If Manuel and Miguel bought anything else, it wasn't on them. So we've got 2.1 million cruzeros that are totally unaccounted for. Is it possible they used that money when they encountered the men in the Jeep? Well, it's a lot of money to spend at once, unless they were buying pricey electronic equipment or expensive drugs. Unfortunately, we have no idea where they spent it or what it was spent on. Then there's the matter of the mysterious notebook and the odd instructions it contained. The police investigated it further, but this only raised more questions. Anything in that notebook? I still don't understand those instructions. Ingest capsules, after effect, protect metals, and wait for mask signal? It's crazy talk. Well, there's more where that came from. There's writing on a few other pages, too. This one has a bunch of numbers on it. That's peculiar. I thought so, too. Until I did some research and realized they were serial numbers for different electronic parts. Oh. Well, that was probably related to their work. They were electronics repairmen, right? Exactly. They were in town to buy equipment, so maybe it's just their shopping list. Anything else? Yeah, a third page with more instructions. It says, Sunday, take a tablet after a meal. Monday morning, take a tablet on an empty stomach. Tuesday, take a tablet after a meal. Wednesday, take a tablet before bed. I wonder if that has anything to do with the capsules they were supposed to take on the hill. Both sets of instructions are mysterious, and it feels like they're linked. Were the week-long regimen of tablets that they were supposed to take related to the capsules that they planned to ingest on the hill? Possibly. 
The last day mentioned in the regimen was Wednesday, and Manuel and Miguel died on Wednesday, August 17th. But those instructions say to take a tablet before bed. If they died in the early evening, then that would have been hours before going to sleep for the night. True, but perhaps there's a translation issue at play here. If the intended meaning wasn't before bed, but rather before going to sleep, that would mean something different. Oh, that's right. We saw that Manuel and Miguel had laid out palm leaves to rest upon. So maybe that indicated that they were planning to sleep then. Then again, translations of the notebook use the term tablet for the page describing the week-long regimen, but capsule for the instructions meant for August 17th, so it's possible there's no link between the two pages. The instructions could have simply been medication instructions from a doctor. Fair enough, though the circumstances of their death still make that suspicious. Let's focus on the most important set of instructions, the ones that seem to pertain to the day of their death. We should note here that the handwriting in the notebook was thought to be Miguel's, but we can't be 100% sure, so it's possible that they were acting on an unknown third party's orders. The instructions are vague, but the general consensus is that the men had to ingest a capsule, wait for an effect, protect some metals, and wait for a mask signal, perhaps a signal to put on the lead masks. It's important to note that due to the phrasing, It's possible that effect doesn't mean the effect of the capsules on the person taking them. It could be interpreted as referring to them witnessing some kind of effect and then taking the capsules. Next comes the part about protecting the metals. What metals? Manuel and Miguel weren't in possession of any metals at the time of death, except for, of course, the lead masks. Or if they had any other metals... They had been removed by the time the police found them. Now, this is an important fact to remember. The two men had been dead for almost four days before the police arrived, which means that it's possible that evidence was stolen from their bodies. Right, maybe all that missing money was just stolen off them. But why would the robber decide to leave them some spare change? Well, the notebook is a treasure trove of clues just begging to be interpreted, but it's hard for us to analyze because so many of the elements mentioned, like the metals, capsules, and tablets, weren't found on the bodies. Without that available, it's nearly impossible to understand the true significance of the book's mysterious instructions and the real-world ramifications of following them. Still, two things are clear here. First, the notebook indicates that Manuel and Miguel were following a very strange, very specific plan. And second, it's clear that inadvertently or not, That plan is what led to their deaths. The final step instructed Miguel and Manuel to wait for a mask signal. Luckily, the lead masks were still on the bodies, which means they're the only objects mentioned in the notebook that police could actually investigate. The masks resembled crudely fashioned homemade sunglasses that covered the wearer's eyes. Unlike sunglasses, however, these masks didn't have temple pieces to hook behind the wearer's ear. If you weren't holding them to your face, they would have fallen off instantly. Unless you had them on while you were lying down, which could explain the palm leaves that Miguel and Manuel were lying on. And we've brought up the possibility that Miguel and Manuel wanted to sleep on the hill, so maybe they simply wanted the masks for extra shade? True, but if that's what they wanted, they probably could have achieved that with a good pair of sunglasses. Besides, by the time they got to the hill, it was getting dark, so the sun wouldn't have been a huge bother for them. Now, these masks were solid and totally covered their eyes, so it seems Manuel and Miguel were dead set on protecting their vision. 
But the weather was apparently bad that evening, and the sun was already setting. So we have to wonder, what did Manuel and Miguel want to protect their eyes from? We'll look for that answer after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, Priceline. It's only a kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Now back to the story. The Brazilian police certainly made some errors in their investigation into the deaths of Manuel da Cruz and Miguel Viana, who were found dead on a hill in August of 1966 with no visible injuries and an array of suspicious clues surrounding them. They got to the bodies four days after they died, and the backup at the coroner's office meant that they were never able to properly determine a cause of death beyond the vague notion of cardiac arrest. But it's also fair to say that the clues that they had weren't very helpful. They couldn't figure out where the majority of the money went, and the instructions the men seemed to be following were hard to decipher. They tried to focus on the practical elements of the case, but their list of leads was short. The exact timeline is unclear, but it seems police identified the bodies as Miguel and Manuel a couple days after they found them on August 21st. Through interviews with Miguel and Manuel's family and friends in the days and weeks after they discovered the bodies, local police and journalists began to form a theory about how they died. The theory was this. Manuel and Miguel did go to Niederoy to buy electronic equipment, but what they were trying to buy was illegal and possibly imported from outside Brazil. This doesn't mean that they had nefarious intentions. Due to the unstable Brazilian currency, it was probably just difficult to purchase foreign equipment legally. Manuel and Miguel went to Niederoy to meet with smugglers who would sell them the equipment. They dressed up in formal suits because this was important business for them. The serial numbers that were found in their notebooks represented the equipment that they were purchasing, and the men in the Jeep who were seen with Miguel and Manuel were the smugglers. After the sale took place, Miguel and Manuel went up the hill to test the equipment. Their theory claimed the equipment was radioactive or dangerous, which would explain why they wanted to test it in an isolated environment. This could be where both the capsules and the lead masks come into play, especially if using the equipment required protection. The capsules they swallowed could have been anti-radiation pills like potassium iodide, a compound that protects against the harmful after-effects of uranium exposure. Similarly, the lead mask could have been used as an extra layer of protection from radiation. Something went wrong with the test, and Miguel and Manuel died from radiation poisoning. Or the capsules they took were actually poisoned. Maybe the smugglers gave them the pills and told them they would protect them. After the men died, 
the smugglers returned to collect their equipment. According to this popular theory, the whole thing was just an illegal deal gone terribly wrong. But there are a lot of holes here. While it's true that the coroner was never able to test Miguel and Manuel's bodies for radiation, the area on the hill where they were found contained no traces of radioactivity. There was also no evidence that these electronic repairmen had any interest in radioactive materials. Or indications that anyone had tampered with the bodies. And no suspicious smugglers were ever identified. This theory feels like a bit of a reach without substantial evidence and certainly doesn't solve the odd, puzzle-like traits of the crime scene. It also doesn't fully explain the use of the lead masks, which were and continue to be the signature clue to this unsolved mystery. In the days following the discovery of the bodies, police looked into the origins of these mysterious masks in hopes that they would discover a link between their presence and the death of these men. They discovered that a neighbor had seen Manuel and Miguel using a hammer to meld a lead pipe into scraps for these masks. And this neighbor had a very odd conversation with the two men about why they were making them. Hey, Manuel, Miguel, uh, what are you guys making? We can hear that clanging from across the street. We're working. Can you come back later? Is that... Are those glasses? Yeah, they are. Why are you making them? You won't be able to see anything. We have to. Why? We're going to use them to stop the end of the world. The fact that Manuel and Miguel told the neighbor that they were going to use them to save the world added another odd wrinkle to the story. It's possible that their statement was a strange joke designed to ward off a nosy neighbor, but it's also part of an emerging pattern of strange behavior. They told their friend Elcio Gomez that he couldn't come along on the trip and that he'd understand when they got back. When they ran into Miguel's niece at the bus station in Campos, they told her that their trip was important work. Now, maybe Miguel and Manuel were just unusually precious about their work as electronic repairmen. Or maybe they were alluding to the fact that they were off to buy illegal equipment, which gave this trip a special importance. But all this secrecy could have pointed to something far stranger, and it may have had something to do with the fact that Miguel and Manuel weren't just electronic repairmen. Police only learned this after investigating what they thought was, finally, a plausible murder suspect. On August 27, 1966, Brazilian newspaper Jornal do Brasil reported that Manuel's widow, Nelly Pereira da Cruz, had given the police a solid lead to follow. Officer, you have to understand. I thought Manuel was just having a fight with his friend. That happens sometimes, you know? But it was a big fight, and looking back on it, maybe it was worse than I thought. Mrs. De Cruz, who was your husband fighting with? It was Elcio. Elcio Gomez. Elcio Gomez was an associate of Manuel and Miguel, and if you'll recall, he's the one who was told he couldn't come with the men to Nidoroy on August 17th. The Niederoy police questioned Elcio and arrested him soon afterwards. He had apparently given inconsistent testimony, though we don't know what those inconsistencies were. The police's triumph was short-lived, however, when they were forced to let Elcio go free. His alibi seemed rock solid. On August 17th, the day that Miguel and Manuel presumably died, Elcio was over 100 miles away in their hometown of Campos dos Goitacajis. 
Of course, if the capsules they ingested were poisoned, Elcio could have been the one to give Miguel and Manuel poison pills in their hometown before they left for Niteroy. Despite this possibility, which doesn't seem like it was explored too deeply, the police decided that even though Elcio had a tense relationship with Manuel and Miguel, he couldn't have killed them. Still, the Niteroy police encounter with Elcio did provide them with new insight into the dead men's lives. Officers, can I go? I think it's safe to say I couldn't have killed Manuel or Miguel from 200 kilometers away. If you didn't hurt them, maybe you can help us. We're still trying to find some meaning in their strange behavior. <sighs> well, maybe my friends were trying to find some meaning here too. What does that mean? They were repairmen. Doesn't sound like a profession that leaves much room for philosophy. They were more than that, officer. I am too. What do you mean, Mr. Gomez? I guess you'd call us scientific spiritualists. And looking back on the way they were behaving, I'd say Manuel and Miguel were on the verge of a breakthrough. Beneath the mask of their everyday occupation, Manuel and Miguel were deeply devout spiritualists. Miguel was especially passionate about this philosophy. And he was apparently the one who brought Manuel into the fold. Why are we going to this again? Manuel, just trust me. It's just a meeting, and it's a really great group of people. Spiritualists, though? I mean, I have nothing against them, but we're tech guys. We're practically scientists, Miguel. Isn't this stuff kind of the opposite of what we're supposed to believe in? Maybe science and technology are just our primitive way of understanding the higher powers that are guiding this world. I don't know, Miguel. Do you really believe in this? I do. And soon, you will too. You may not realize it, as you idle along between your jobs and your families and your insignificant hobbies, but we are all immortals, spirits trapped in a human shell. We go about our lives, sometimes several lives, until we finally reach enlightenment. That's what sets us free to ascend to a higher plane. From there, we can look down at our world and influence it, for better or for worse. So tell me, ladies and gentlemen, what would you do to achieve true spiritual freedom? Both Miguel and Manuel were seen attending spiritualist sessions in their home city of Campos all throughout the summer of 1966. We should note here that this isn't as unusual as it may seem. Spiritualism was a powerful force in Brazil and remains so to this day. Even as of the year 2000, 1.3% of Brazilians were practicing spiritualists. But what does that mean exactly? Hmm. Miguel and Manuel studied spiritism, which is an offshoot of spiritualism that finds its roots in 19th century France. Under the pen name Alan Kardec, French author Hippolyte Ravai theorized that all of us are spirits trapped inside of earthly bodies that limit our abilities. Only through several reincarnations do our intellects and moralities evolve enough for us to gain enlightenment and break free from our bodies. Then we can take our place among the spirits who exert both positive and negative influences on the world. You might think a philosophy based on spirits and reincarnation would be an odd thing for two electronic repairmen to follow. But think again. Well, apparently many members of Compost Tech community were also avid followers of spiritism, including their friend Elcio Gomes. 
This group of followers didn't seem to feel much of a pull between their dueling interests of technology and mysticism. Instead, they referred to themselves as scientific spiritualists. It sounds like a fascinating way to view the world, but the double life that Manuel and Miguel led does make us wonder about their mission on Vintame Hill. Is it possible that what drew them to Niederoy on that fateful August day wasn't their interest in scientific equipment? The fact that Manuel and Miguel were interested in mysticism threw a wrench in the case. Suddenly, it meant that police would have to delve into spiritism to try to understand the men's motives. Suddenly, their mysterious behavior had a new context. Maybe their plans seemed irrational because they were all in service of an unusual philosophy. When police searched Miguel's home laboratory, they found the remains of the lead pipe that the two men had used to pound into homemade lead masks. But that's not all they found. Hey, check this out. I found this book right near the lead scraps. What is it? A manual? No, it's a lot weirder than that. I can barely make sense of it, but it's about ghosts. Or spirits, I guess. And check this out. Look what it says about them. Intense luminosity. Hmm. I wonder if we just found out the reason they wore those strange masks. Miguel's lab contained literature about spiritual beings, which said these spirits were so bright, they were practically blinding. So, Miguel and Manuel read a book on blindingly bright spiritual beings. Then they built lead masks to protect their eyes. Which begs the question, did they go to Vintame Hill because they thought they were going to encounter these spirits? Well, that could explain the formal business suits that they wore. If they thought they'd be making contact with hyper-evolved spiritual beings, they probably wanted to look their best. While we're not seriously suggesting that higher beings were at play, the sudden introduction of a supernatural element in the case meant that the Niederoy Police Department was forced to consider very different kinds of evidence. Then, in late August of 1966, a man named Mr. De Souza came to the police with a shocking story. Officer, I'm asking for discretion here. I want to assure you that my wife is a perfectly sensible and sane woman, and she's very well respected in our neighborhood. What I'm about to tell you could endanger that. Mr. De Souza, I'll be as discreet as I can be. Gracinda was driving back from a religious meeting with our children on the evening of August 17th. That's when those men died, right? As near as we can tell, yes. What happened with your wife? She saw something. God, it sounds so silly. She saw something in the sky right above Vintame Hill. She thinks it was a UFO. Okay. Can you ask your wife to come in here, please? Mrs. De Souza, tell me what you saw. It was a bright orange oval, surrounded by a ring of fire. Yes, I know this sounds crazy, but I saw it. What did this oval do? It was there, above Vintem Hill, for three or four minutes, and it just hovered up, then down, then up, then down. It was the, the craziest thing. And then it just disappeared. The news of what Gracinda de Souza saw appeared in almost every local newspaper on August 25th, 1966. It was a bizarre story, but also had an even more bizarre effect on the local community. Hello? Yes, officer. I was reading the paper, and I saw the story about what that woman saw on Vintame Hill. I saw it too! 
I was scared to say anything because I thought I was going nuts. But now, I know I'm not. Now, will somebody shut those damn phones off? Sir, I can't. It's like every conspiracy nut has decided to call us tonight. The police were inundated with calls from local residents who claimed to have seen the orange light, too. There's a fine line between science fiction and fantasy, and it seems like the local population didn't see much of a distinction between spiritual figures and visitors from another world. The Niederoy police thought that they were dealing with a botched smuggling until they were confronted with the possibility that the deaths were actually the result of a spiritualist experiment. Now, they had to contend with a much stranger theory that their city of Niederoy was a hotspot for alien activity. I just don't understand. I know I'm new here, but this has got to be one of the most confounding cases ever. I feel like I'm going crazy. Then again, I guess everyone else in this town has. It's one hell of a first case for a young cop, I'll tell you that much. I wish I had your attitude. You seem to be handling it so well. Well, that's because this case doesn't surprise me too much. Maybe some part of me has always felt like it would happen again. What do you mean? You see, four years ago, we found another man dead in these same hills. And guess what we found by his cold, dead body? What? Another lead mask. Next time, we'll delve deeper into the mystery of the lead masks. We'll discover the sinister history of Niederoy and the case of the psychic who died there while performing an experiment with a lead mask. We'll also look into Manuel and Miguel's pasts to find out that their trip to Niederoy may not have been the first time they tried to make contact with the beyond. We'll follow the case as it becomes an obsession for UFO enthusiasts. And try to figure out if Manuel and Miguel were foolish victims of their own obsession or two techno-spiritualists on the verge of true enlightenment. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time... Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Amin Osman. The amazing cast of voice actors include Mike Posey, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Steve Pinto, Harris Markson, Sammy Nye, Dan Velasquez, Tiana Camacho, Julian Smith, Joe Hernandez, and Drew Lawn. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.